Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Hello and welcome to this special bonus episode of So To Speak, the free speech podcast. I'm your host, Nico Perino, and on this podcast, we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. Now, usually we're only releasing one episode every other week. However, this week we're releasing two episodes and giving you a special bonus episode to commemorate the retirement of Judge Richard Posner of the 7th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Judge Posner suddenly retired last Saturday, September 2nd, at the age of 78 after serving on the 7th Circuit since 1981 when he was appointed to that court by President Ronald Reagan. Since his appointment to the court, Judge Posner has been one of the most vocal, provocative, and influential appellate court judges, writing over 3,300 opinions and authoring dozens of books during his tenure. He's one of the most, if not the most, influential and frequently cited federal appellate judges in the United States, according to the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin, which broke the news of Judge Posner's retirement. In his retirement announcement, Judge Posner said he is proud to have promoted a pragmatic approach to judging during his time on the court. And after his retirement, he said he looks forward to continuing to teach and publish with a particular focus on social justice reform. To commemorate his retirement, we're taking you back to May 16th of 2016, When Judge Posner sat down with former So To Speak podcast guest Jeffrey Stone to discuss the First Amendment in what I think is Judge Posner's longest ever interview on the subject. The discussion occurred at the University of Chicago Law School, where both Judge Posner and Professor Stone teach. Coincidentally, actually, both clerked for U.S. Supreme Court Justice William Brennan. To say Judge Posner's interview here was interesting would be to understate it. Uh, As Ron Collins, who's been on this podcast before as well, as Ron Collins put it in his blog post for concurring opinions, the discussion was atypically uninhibited, surprisingly robust, and exceptionally wide open. Judge Posner discussed executive power in wartime, for example, which he said should be considerable. He said leaders should place no limits on what they're going to do to win because such an attitude is very important for public morale. And he seemed to approve of Roosevelt's internment of Japanese Americans during World War II and Abraham Lincoln's ignoring the Supreme Court's decision in ex parte Merriman when the court held Lincoln's suspension of habeas corpus to be unconstitutional. Judge Posner also discussed Citizens United, which he called terrible. Uh, The Supreme Court in general was also discussed, and he called the Supreme Court a mediocre institution. Also discussed was McCullen v. Coakley, the Pentagon Papers, flag burning, and much, much more. And after listening to this podcast, it becomes quite clear why Judge Posner chose to describe his judicial philosophy as pragmatic. I'll let you all listen to the podcast and judge my analysis of that for yourself. Um, This podcast, this conversation uh, between Judge Posner and Professor Stone was organized by the First Amendment Salon, which hosts a series of nonpartisan programs designed to foster an open dialogue about First Amendment issues. You might recall 
that we featured a past salon event with the ACLU's National Legal Director, David Cole, in a podcast we published last December, and we will feature more salon events on this podcast in the future since Fire and, so to speak, have taken over the audio, video, and archiving responsibilities for the salon moving forward. I want to give you a fair warning before we begin this episode. The audio quality is not great, but this conversation, in my opinion, is too timely and too interesting, and the audio quality is just good enough that, in my opinion, it's worth sharing. This interview occurred before Fire took over audio-video responsibilities for the salon, and it was recorded over a video conferencing system. Typically, these salons feature a Q&A portion at the end as well, where attendees in the law offices of Levine, Sullivan, Koch, and Schultz um, ask questions of the guests via the video conference. However, the audio quality of the questions for this salon is just too poor for me to share with you here on the podcast today, so all you'll get is the Posner Stone interview. But if you're interested in viewing the Q&A portion, which you should be, a video of the full salon, including the Q&A, can be found on FIRE's YouTube page at youtube.com slash thefireorg. A link to that video will be copied in the show description for this podcast, so you can click that link there. Uh, in the Q&A portion, notably, Posner addresses First Amendment protections for college students, which, spoiler alert, he argues undermines the educational process. He, he also tackles much, much more. Uh, before we begin, as you're listening, note that Jeffrey Stone refers to Judge Richard Posner as Dick, so don't be confused by that. And now, let's get on to the interview. So, so Dick, to start off with, what in your sense is the, is the purpose of the First Amendment's guarantee of freedom of speech and press? The purpose? Yeah. What was it designed to do? Well, I think, they, I think the people who wrote the Constitution were, um, con- you know, they were, they were trying to get away from the uh, English... Well, they, let me start over. The Constitution is largely copied from the English uh, legal system, but they did want to get away from certain features of, of English government. And um, you know, they worried about uh, censorship and an all-powerful uh, government that would stifle um, uh, debate and disagreement. So... Of course, they didn't really explain anything. Just <laughs> say free speech doesn't tell you. And no one actually believes in unlimited free speech. You, know, you wouldn't have any copyright law if you really took free speech literally. But um, uh, you know, there's a professor here at U of C, David Strauss, who thinks that uh, what we call constitutional law is not in the Constitution that the Supreme Court simply treats the Constitution as a uh, authorization of the Supreme Court to create a common law of constitutionality. Uh, I think that's realistic. Um, <clears throat> what we have today in the way of constitutional concepts really has n- no serious connection with the 18th century. So in light of that, what lesson would you draw from the fact that less than a decade after uh, the framers adopted the First Amendment, um, 
they also adopted the Sedition Act of 1798. Um, what does that tell us, if anything, about what they thought the First Amendment did or didn't do? Well, I think they probably they probably thought that um, that <clears throat> freedom of speech was a, was a value, but there are a lot of countervailing values, such as national security. So we have serious concerns about the safety of the country. Um, free speech goes down the drain, which I think makes perfectly good sense. I mean, part of the question then, of course, is how do you decide whether the threat to the nation's security is great enough to justify right, restrictions on free speech or press? So even if one agrees that there, it's, it's appropriate to take that into account in deciding whether any particular speech or press is protected, um, from the Sedition Act context, it didn't seem that the supporters of that legislation were all that afraid for the national security. Um, they used that as an excuse, right? But it seemed that they were really much more interested in electoral politics at the time. Does that matter? I mean, did, did, are they being cynical and <laughs> that make us think this whole thing is about nothing? Um, I, think it's, I think it's fine to have the, uh, the Supreme Court taking on itself responsibility for creating a body of uh, free speech law and then the court and lower courts have to decide whether the government has made a, a good case for um, limiting speech. If you look at the sorts of things that are limited, um, um, defamation, uh, I mentioned, um, um, well, all, 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 all copyright law, um, threats, right? So, for example, one very effective form of speech, of communication is assassination. But uh, that is generally forbidden, right? <laughs> Even though it's, a very, it's very expressive. So, um, so I don't think you can really generalize except to say somebody like uh, the judges are going to decide whether um, some measure of of restriction of speech is uh, is justified you know it's sort of costs and benefits there are costs and benefits to freedom of speech in particular uh, circumstances and um, that's really all there is to it huh? So why don't we take a look at a couple of landmark First Amendment cases and get your sense of whether, how you would have approached them. Okay, so um, say Dennis versus the United States, right, where the court upheld, communist, yeah. right, upheld the convictions of the leaders of the Communist Party. Um, did the court do the right thing there? Oh, I think so. I mean, he had learned hand writing the opinion the Court of Appeals upholding. Uh, right, but he was following the precedent at that point. Right. But I think that rep I think it represented his views, and um, you know there was a lot of concern about communist uh, subversion in the United States in those days. I, I don't see any real problem with that. Uh, do you? Um, yeah, do I? I do. I mean, I I think that, uh, I, I think Dennis was wrong in the same way that. 
had the Supreme Court upheld the Sedition Act of 1798, it would have been wrong. That is, that there was a, a case made, a claim made, that the reason for the government's action was national security, but that the court should look at those claims with a degree of skepticism, given the fact that there's also a motivation to suppress speech you don't like, just because you don't like it. And that's not really national security. And so I would say in both of those instances, for example, um, the, it would be appropriate for the court to invalidate the law, uh, not because there aren't circumstances where the threat to national security might conceivably be sufficiently great to justify restrictions on speech, um, with a, clear, a real clear and present danger type test, for example, but that in both of those cases, I think the court was allowing, or there was no first case, there was no Sedition Act case, earlier the Sedition Act case, but in both of those situations, uh, I think I think upholding the law would have reflected uh, an inadequate degree of skepticism on yeah. the part of the justice. Well, I don't, I don't know about the enough about the Alien Sedition Act, but as far as Dennis is look, the Communist Party, USA, was an arm of the Soviet Union. It had no autonomy. Uh, in during World War II and afterwards, the communists. Uh, penetrated deeply into American government. You know, the OSS, our predecessor, the CIA, World War II, it was honeycombed with um, Soviet agents. Actually, when I, I did some writing on, some, some years ago and happened in a book to chance upon the name of a man who was a close friend of my family, my parents. My parents, very left-wing. I think my mother may have been a member of the Communist Party. I don't know. Really stupid ideas they had, and um, oh, when Stalin died, that was that was I was a kid. Stalin, that was a tragedy in our house. Death of Stalin. <laughs> they, my parents did not believe anything in the New York Times. They didn't believe there was, you know, a, a concentration camp in the Soviet Union. They didn't believe it. No sense. So anyway, I, I, I find the name of this uh, friend of the family, who I really liked, he was very smart. He'd been in the OSS, and um, uh, the Venona tapes that uh, uh, FBI spying on communications between the United States and uh, Moscow <laughs> discovered that this, I won't mention his name, although he must be dead by now. Uh, they discovered he was a Soviet agent <laughs> Uh, in the OSS with a lot of other Soviet agents. And um, so, um, but they didn't, they didn't prosecute. They fired him. Then he sued them for firing him. They didn't prosecute him because the evidence they had that he was a Soviet agent, although airtight, it was what's called the Venona tapes. So the, the FBI had been, you know, tapping communications between uh, Moscow and the Soviet embassy in uh, Washington. And they absolutely refused to, uh, to release the venetian <coughs> to the president or the Justice Department. So um, uh, any doubts about Alger Hiss having been a Soviet agent were dispelled when the Venona tapes finally many years later 
uh, revealed that he was indeed a Soviet agent. So my uh, family friend uh, was not prosecuted um, uh, because they wouldn't reveal, they, their only source was the Venona tape. So he turned around and sued them <laughs> for firing him because they couldn't give a reason. But he lost. But he, he went on and uh, did fine. He was very, very smart, a fun, fun person. But uh, as I say, the Communist Party was foreign. It was, it was a foreign, um, it was a tool of, an, of a hostile foreign country. I don't know why you'd protect the, the free speech of uh, a foreign, foreign agents. So you would draw a distinction then between Dennis and, say, the World War I cases, where the government prosecuted individuals who uh, criticized the war and the draft in ways that the government claimed uh, interfered in significant ways with the war effort, but they were not agents of a foreign power. So right. would that be the key difference in your, in your mind? Um, what is what is the phrase? Intra bellis leges salentium or something. That's garbled Latin. <laughs> but the the notion is that in wartime laws are silent, which I think is perfectly sensible. Um, you know, we've done things well. Do you think the court had it right then in cases like Shank and Froerick? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't, I don't think Masses, it probably I mean, wasn't necessary. The, these people who, you know, picketed, picketed the draft officers, I, I, they weren't doing harm. So pro probably it wasn't necessary. But, um, you know, one thing, this is very important, like a very, a very much criticized um, act of U.S. government in the Second World War was the relocation of Japanese Americans on the West Coast to inland uh, when the war started for fear, for ostensible fear that um, uh, these Japanese Americans would become a fifth column uh, helping the Japanese. Because, of course, the beginning of the war, after Pearl Harbor, right after Pearl Harbor, uh, Japan was uh, riding high. So um, this was criticized later. The government <laughs> uh, government provide compensation for the Japanese American because, in fact, they were entirely harmless. But what he did, what Roosevelt did, was right in ordering them relocated. And the reason is that when, when a war starts and you are the the person the the the, com the country attacked, the most important thing for you to show is you show your citizens that the government will stop at nothing to win the war. That's essential to uh, civilian morale. And Churchill knew the same thing. So uh, after the uh, when the Germans, you know what. When the, when the English were driven out of France, with the fall of France and Dunkirk and so on, and um, uh, the, the Germans start bombing London and Coventry and all sorts of other cities. And um, 
Churchill did something that made no mili strict military sense, which is that he had uh, British bombers bomb German cities, bomb Berlin. Did no damage, it's pointless. But it wasn't pointless, because it was telling the British that, that Britain would stop at nothing, kill German civilians by the tens of thousands if they could. And as I say, I think that's, I think, Showing your people that you're going to uh, le uh, let place no limits on what you're going to do to win is very important for morale. Sounds like make America great again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so no, with that with that in mind, what about ISIS? So two issues, right? One is, w would you allow the government today to suppress any pro-ISIS messages um, that enter the United States or within the United States? And taking the Japanese internment example, um, would you think it appropriate uh, to intern all Muslim Americans? <laughs> uh, you know, because the vast majority of Muslims are not uh, involved in terrorist activities. Wasn't that true of Japanese Americans as well? Pardon? Wasn't that true of Japanese Americans as well? Yes, but the difference is, you know, the Pearl Harbor attack was extremely disturbing to people. Uh, it was a total surprise. It did tremendous damage to the American uh, military establishment, which was very limited at the time. But 9-11 um, was even worse. It, what is what is true about the, uh, if there are more you know San Bernardinos, there will come a point at which the country will be ready to deport its entire Muslim population. But uh, the attacks the attacks so far there there've been attempts. We I had a case uh, a couple of years ago about a terrorist threat in Chicago, a serious threat, although foiled by the government. Um, but if this became more frequent, if there were more, so you have the the Boston Marathon uh, killings, you had a, f a few incidents in New York, and you have San Bernardino. Uh, in a country of 315 million, those incidents are sufficiently small that you're not going to go berserk, <laughs> drive out the whole Muslim population, even when 99% of them are loyal. So, um, but I say if this continues, it gets worse, there will come a point at which the country will react uh, ferociously. The question, I guess, though, is not whether the country will want to react ferociously, but whether the court should prevent it from doing so. And there is, in theory, a difference between the desire to behave that way and what the Constitution permits. <clears throat> Well, you know, traditionally, um, the, the courts did not interfere with uh, war, uh, war, war measures by government. Um, I mean, a good, a good example of this is when Chief Justice, the beginning of the Civil War, Chief Justice Tawney uh, granted habeas corpus for some Southern sympathizer in Maryland. And... Um, yeah, so ordered the guy released, and uh, Lincoln simply ordered that he not be released. 
which was absolutely the correct thing to do. Couldn't let, the, couldn't let 20 of all people <laughs> uh, run, you know, run the government, interfere with the government in the Civil War. Beginning of the Civil War, it's like the beginning of World War II. It's the most dangerous time, and you have to show uh, uh, complete firmness. And forget about, you know, um, there's a lot of really silly old stuff <laughs> in law. And um, I, I really like the idea of the executive uh, defying the courts, not every day, but there are times. So we had this incident in Illinois. So um, Illinois, Chicago is broke, Cook County is broke, state of Illinois is broke. And in, in part, this is because of pension, gigantically luxurious pension conditions for uh, retired civil servants, as of grotesque uh, pensions. And um, these were, uh, the mayor tried to um, uh, cancel the pen or reduce the pensions. And the pensioners sued in the Supreme Court of Illinois, citing a provision of the Constitution about, I don't know, sacredness of pension contracts or something, uh, invalidated the attempt of the city to curtail these pensions, thus digging Chicago into a deeper financial hole. And that was, I thought, really stupid. What she should have said is this provision, this constitutional provision about the sacredness of pensions, this was adopted in a different era. They didn't foresee what has happened to the, uh, the finances of the city. So we're not going to force that old thing. That would have been the sensible thing to do. And there are a lot of, I think there are a number of occasions where that's the, that's the thing to say. I mean, suppose, for example, that the, uh, a, a president was elected who, instead of being 35, was 34. You think the Supreme Court should say, oh, well, sorry, you're out. Supreme Court says, you, I mean, the Constitution says you have to be 35. No, that would be ridiculous. The country wants a 34-year-old. Right? It's called democracy. Um, Didn't you hold state laws prohibiting same-sex marriage unconstitutional? Pardon? Didn't you hold state laws prohibiting same-sex marriage unconstitutional? What about democracy? You know? Pardon? What about democracy? Um... Well, I, de democracy doesn't override everything, right? Would it? Why, why, would, why would you want to take well, that? I was trying to see what the line was. There is no line. It's just whatever costs better. You take it every, you take it. Right. There's no line. Okay. Let, let's take a look at another Supreme Court decision that was kind of a landmark one. Um, how about Roth versus United States? That is, the question is, is, is obscenity appropriately, yeah, is business. obscenity appropriately unprotected by the First Amendment? Does that make sense? Um, well, it once made sense when people were really very upset by pornography. Now it's a, now and beginning of, not quite in the 50s, a little later, now it's, <coughs> it's just part, of, it's, everybody accepts it. Um, but in 1957, that wasn't the case. So when the court decided it, would, would you have agreed with the, with the premise 
that there is um, this category of sexually oriented expression that is not protected by the First Amendment. Um, well, of course, we do continue to forbid, you know, child pornography and so on. I don't know, hard to think back to the 50s. Um, uh, I don't think it made much of a difference um, whether they whether they invalidated or not in the 50s. Actually, the case I particularly dislike from that era, so I've forgotten which it is, I forgot its name, was the one that uh, uh, forbade um, school prayer, public school Ang prayer. Angle versus Vitality. I think really stupid. The reason it's stupid <coughs> is that uh, school prayer means nothing. Um, there's some kids come from religious families, oh, I think it's great. The rest of the kids, they don't, they don't care. It doesn't register. Uh, and when I went to school in the 50s, um, there were Christmas. Big Chris, Christmas was a big thing at the school, public school in uh, Westchester. So, and there was always there was a Christmas pageant for the whole school based on uh, Book of Matthew and the Christ child and the wise men, you know, and the star and all this stuff. And I was, I was always selected to read the relevant passages of uh, Matthew. Now, I have no religious uh, feelings at all. I'm actually quite hostile to all religions. But it never bothered me. Having been raised by communists. It was just... It was just <laughs> Well, actually, it's, it's true, because what it meant was, I, I was thinking about this uh, the other day, for some reason, the word, I'm pretty sure now that in my household growing up, the word God was never mentioned. And uh, uh, the, so my, my parents were nominally Jewish, so once... In my entire childhood, uh, they took me to a Seder, you know, Passover thing. And I was so bored that I, I took the matzah in front of me and I ran it through the, the, um, the, 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 the candles, right? Little candles on the table. And it blackened. And I ate it. <laughs> it was sickening. I thought you were going to say you wrote a book. On it. <laughs> so, so no. I, I. But as I say, the the fact that there were these uh, Christmas uh, Christmas things, and you know, and the Pre pledge of allegiance changed, inserting under God. Of course, I would never say under God, but there it is. But I I don't think. Having you know public school prayer these observances they 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 please the parents of the kids who are religious, but I don't see that the other kids are bothered. Maybe there's some kids who are bothered. Most just slough it off. It's just something that goes on in school, made by adults, and don't have to buy into it. So, what do you think about Citizens United? Oh, I think that's terrible. Why? What about democracy? 
about democracy. What do you mean by democracy? Now, democracy cuts your way here, so. Um, no, I. No, the, the the problem is, the problem is you have a form of you have a form of bribery, in which um, you uh, you're, you're you're a billionaire, so you give money to a politician. Politician very grateful. Politician knows that if he doesn't, at least you know, most of the time, part of the time, what have you, vote for measures that you the donor uh, support, you're not going to get his donations next time. That's a disaster. When uh, for Republicans in Congress, when a new member of the House of Representatives is is elected, <laughs> he gets a card from the Republican leader, which says, you shall devote five hours a day to fundraising. And um, now that's five hours during your working day. Now dinner, after dinner, cocktails and stuff, you'll also be sucking up to donors. Now with that kind of, of um, obsession with fundraising, of course you have to, it has to be a quid pro quo. I mean, the Supreme Court it's a really a mediocre institution, if ever there was one. And it's sort of nader now. The <laughs> uh, Supreme Court thinks, you know, there's a terrible opinion by Roberts, which they say, oh, the reason that the billionaires give the money to a particular congressman and the congressman takes it and that the congressman then votes for measures that the billionaire likes is that they just think alike. They just happen to have the same. There's this happy coalescence of their political views. So it's not bribery because the representative doesn't change his mind about anything. Of course, the representatives, the congressmen generally, they don't, they don't have principles or anything. They just care about being uh, reelected for as long as they want to be uh, congressman, and then also very important to them as part of this uh, bribery system, they want to get a good job after their con after Congress. Good job is being a lobbyist in Washington. So again, you're going to be a lobbyist. You'll be working for these rich people, and you will they will want you to have shown your loyalty to them when you were a, a congressman. So I don't know where. Citizens United is just the product of, you know, conservatives. It doesn't have anything to do with democracy, law, right? That's what you think. Yes, it is right. <laughs> right. So, so on, on, that, on that note, to what extent do the justices um, actually try sincerely and effectively to apply something called law, and to what extent are they simply acting out of their own ideological, political values and imposing them <coughs> on the pretense that it's constitutional law? Um, well, I, I look at it differently. Um, I, w I wouldn't say pretense, because pretense suggests conscious consciousness that you're doing something you're not supposed to do. And um, uh, 
there's, there's a line in Shakespeare somewhere. No man is a villain in his own eyes. So whatever you do, you're likely to um, uh, coat it with a you know, layer of um, uh, disguise. Um, but the most important thing is not the, the conscious disguise views. Um, most people, in making decisions which are not, you know, mechanical, they're not adding two and two, but deciding how to vote in a case, they are, they're likely to be guided mainly by what psychologists would call their priors. And, and, it, and those of you familiar with Bayesian uh, theory, so what Bayesians say is if you're given a problem, if you're given a question, uh, when you first encounter the question, you will be bringing to it whatever feelings, emotions, knowledge, whatever you have. It's just automatic. You see a problem, a whole bunch of reactions well up within you. Now, after uh, that first encounter with a question, you may try to find evidence. And the evidence may shift you from what your priors had told you would be the best answer to the question. But the priors usually persist and exert significant force, especially when the evidence is uncertain. You know, it's not like, a, like math or science. Uh, some evidence, this decision would be have certain consequences but you're not sure, and so on. So I think the result of this is the judge is very strongly influenced by career, personality, religion, if they're religious. Um, and as far as, and I, I think these factors, I mean, look at the Supreme Court. Uh, I have a lot of cases that do not have an emotional or political uh, dimension, but, but uh, a great many of them do, and then they're being pushed by their feelings. I don't think they're being analytical. So I um, interviewed Edward Snowden last week, and he said that in response to my question, he said he would come back to the United States and face trial um, if he was allowed to present a defense of justification. Um, do you think the First Amendment should protect what Snowden did? What, stealing government secrets? Publishing, right. Making, making public, making no, public. Why? Because it's important to the government to be able to keep uh, um, documents and so on that, uh, you know, important to national security and Suppose he had, he had revealed programs that were unconstitutional. Um, how would you know they were unconstitutional? Well, who's the you? So, well, if they're real, if they really bear on national security, then their concealment should not be unconstitutional. Right. Well, but they may be unconstitutional. Pardon? The programs themselves may be unconstitutional. 
even though the government's doing them in secret. Indeed, one of the reasons they're doing them in secret may be because they're unconstitutional. And so the point is, once, the, once they're exposed, right, a court, hypothetically, might say, those were unconstitutional programs. You can't do that. So, but it would never would have gotten to the court if someone hadn't leaked it. Yeah, well, no, that's, that would be that would be okay, sure. So the First Amendment exposing would a, Yeah, I would think exposing an unconstitutional program would be in the public interest. You wouldn't want to, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. And, and so what if the leaker reasonably believed it was unconstitutional? Pardon? What if the leaker reasonably believed it was unconstitutional? But it wasn't. But court ultimately decided it wasn't. Then I think he can be punished. So, so strict liability. You, I mean, well, if you're wrong, you're done. Um, it's it's dangerous, of course, to have people <laughs> reasonably but mistakenly believing that there's an unconstitutional program and leaking it all over the place. So I think you want to hold people to a higher standard. I mean, if you believe that there are important. Uh, national security secrets, uh, which I do, but maybe not. Maybe that's wrong. So what about the press? Suppose, suppose Snowden gives these documents to the media, and the media then publishes them, and they're not unconstitutional. The programs they reveal are not unconstitutional, but you know, after people learn about them, they may revise the programs somewhat through the democratic process. But we would never have known about them, uh, A, but for the leak, and B, but for both. <coughs> I assume you'd say you would punish the leaker. Yeah. What about the press then? Should they be treated any differently? No, I don't know why you treat it differently. The press is complicit in a breach of government security. I, I, I wouldn't privilege that. So then you, you don't agree with the Pentagon Papers case? Um, Where the assumption was Ellsberg could have been Convicted. Uh oh, okay. So in the Pentagon Papers case, Ellsberg stole the documents, like Snowden. Um, Ellsberg did not reveal anything that was unconstitutional, um, and the New York Times and the Washington Post published them. And the question is, are they protected by the First Amendment in that situation, even though Ellsberg wouldn't have been? Well, it's it's a more complicated case because the Pentagon Papers. The revelation, the, the revelation of the Pentagon Papers did not have any significance for national security. I mean, they're sort of interesting. They didn't, they didn't give away any actual secrets. Well, one of the things the government argued, and I think, I think was credible, is that um, it disclosed the fact that a number of other nations had made secret deals with us to enable us to use their air bases and so on. And that once that information was public, other nations would be much more reluctant to enter into those kinds of arrangements with us because they now know we can't keep secrets. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. I mean, but that's my recollection. I don't remember that. But that would surely be a small part of the Pentagon Papers. Most of it, as I recall, yeah. it's about the planning for the Vietnam uh, catastrophe and so on. It was actually revealing of how stupid our government was, and I thought that is that was the sort of thing people ought to ought to know about. Absolutely. So you want the public's way to be able to monitor government activities, but not you don't want them to be able to 
get the formula for, you know, the hydrogen bomb. So you would have protected Ellsberg as well? Pardon? So you would have protected Ellsberg as well? Because the Brussels yes. never have gotten if, if, there's a, if there's some little piece, as you suggested, that that was, you know, improper to release, dangerous to release, yeah, that might punish him for that, but but not not the entire Pentagon Papers. What's your assessment of the Roberts Court's general jurisprudence when it comes oh, to free speech? Terrible. Oh, free speech. Free speech. Um, You know, I'm not that familiar. What, what have they done? In well, one argument, well, obviously campaign finance is one, which you've already talked about. Um, another obvious area um, uh, is, um, what was I going to say? Uh, well, there's the McCutcheon case. Right. The, Boston. Uh, the abortion. Where, oh, that was so stupid. <clears throat> that is such a stupid opinion. I hate his opinions. Yeah, that's where he says, I mean, ridiculous stuff that the sidewalks of America is where people meet and exchange ideas and what he's talking about is a 30 the, the abortion clinic wants to have a 30 foot you know zone where people where the crazy people with their pictures of the slashed fetuses can't come in and and terrorize the women going to the abortion clinic, which is not a pleasant situation to be in anyway. So the notion that these people, now what was true is that McCutcheon or whatever her name is, she's a, pardon? McCullen. McCullen? McCullen. She's a very grandmotherly type. She's sweet and so on. So she's not holding up pictures of slashed fetuses. Of course, within 24 hours of the Supreme Court's decision, all the shrieking <laughs> fetus protectors were back in the 30 feet. It was ridiculous. As, but what particularly bothered me about his opinion was, and he says a lot of things which are completely phony, uh, is the proposition that uh, the sidewalks of America are the places where people exchange ideas <laughs> And, you know, get educated, get educated about politics. I mean, what happens if someone accosts you on the street with a political proposition? Because you, you run. So, so Roberts is guilty of, I think, maybe the two stupidest things ever out of the mouth of a Supreme Court member. The first, actually, pre-Supreme Court, was in his confirmation hearing when he said that um, a, a Supreme Court justice is like uh, an umpire, a referee. All he does is call balls and strikes. Now, one of the absurdities that I hasn't, hasn't gotten mentioned much is that an umpire and referee does not decide who wins the, who wins the game. You know, they call foul, of course, rules, but very often, the team with the more fouls will nevertheless win the game. Um, a justice or judge is deciding a case. That's very different from just calling uh, balls and strikes. So that was bad. But worst is his dissent in the Obergefell case, the same-sex marriage case, um, where he said that um, 
that society from a from you know immemorially has regarded marriage as limited to male and female, and um, that includes uh, the Kalahari Bushmen, the Han Chinese, the Aztecs, and the Carthaginians. And and who do we think we are? That's the end of the quotation. Now, that is ridiculous. I mean, that is ridiculous. So you start with the Kalahari, Kalahari Bushmen. Kalahari Bushmen are almost extinct. <laughs> so it's hard. So when, if you read up about the Kalahari Bushmen's sexual and marital practices, you read that, well, they don't really know much about it. They're very informal. <laughs> Very informal, and uh, but on the other hand, you know, there's actually evidence that uh, these Africa and the southern part of Africa, they have a history of you know homosexual activities and so on. So that doesn't do the Han Chinese. Han is just the name of the major ethnic group in China. 90% of Chinese are Han. And it's true, China forbids, um, uh, forbids same-sex marriage. On the other hand, if you go back in history of China, you find all sorts of, of uh, polygamy and homosexuality and all sorts of bad things. And then um, the Aztecs, the Aztecs, um, I looked at two Aztec, two websites on Aztec marital and sexual practices. One said, "Oh, the Aztecs, um, they were fierce. They exercised sodomites." And the next website said, "Oh, the Aztecs, when Cortez's army arrived in Mexico in the 16th century, they were shocked by all this sodomy that they were observing." So that was the that was the tie. And finally, the Carthage... <laughs> so Carthage was destroyed by Rome. And Carthage was destroyed by Rome in 146, 146 B.C. So very little is known about their marital practices. But recently, an Italian professor wrote that... Carthage, now where he got it is, is obscure. Carthage, he said, was a paradise for homosexuals. And their homosexuals infected the Romans. And the reason the Roman Empire fell was that the Romans had become converted, not all of them, but too many of them had become homosexuals as a result of associating with Carthaginians. Can you imagine a supreme at anybody putting stuff, listing these four um, civilizations as as evidence that same-sex marriage is is a should be forbidden? He's also, by the way, while I'm beating up on Roberts, terrible manager. You look at the Supreme Court. They are still unable, it takes them five years to publish their opinions in the U.S. reports. It's extraordinary. 
that gives them a chance to tinker with the opinions for five years before they become, you know, absolutely final. And um, he, he closed the front door of the Supreme Court, which the other justices apparently were very offended by because they thought it was a group decision, uh, not, not for the Chief Justice. And he, um, like his predecessors, he's the ex officio head of the Federal Judicial Center, which is supposed to be some sort of intellectual arm of the judiciary and educate the judges and so on. And um, they have appointed, this has been for a long time, but he certainly hasn't improved it, the, the people they appoint to the Federal Judicial Center are district judges, magistrate judges, bankruptcy judges, uh, not academics, not who, who could actually uh, design educational programs for new uh, uh, judges. Also, look back um, when I was a law clerk in 1962, well, actually a few years later, took a few years, but in the late 60s, the Supreme Court was hearing twice as many cases as it hears today. Um, even though it had no, it had only two law clerks. Um, I had no electronic research, obviously. Um, and, and despite the fact that the Supreme Court hears so many fewer cases today, it's allowing less uh, time for oral arguments. And the Supreme Court justice now, they babble incessantly during oral arguments. They asked a few questions back in the 60s. So um, you'd think the court having fewer cases would enlarge the time so that the lawyers would get to uh, uh, say something. So let me let me ask you because I'm running out of time. Um, what do you think about Justice Scalia as a justice and in, in terms of free speech issues? Oh, I I think I uh, I think I think bad. Um, so the the free speech decision of his that um, sticks in my mind is the burning of the American flag, which he was very proud of as showing that he was, you know, he just decides what by what the law is, just is guided by the law. It's very silly because he styled himself an originalist. He pretended that he was interpreting the Constitution, Bill of Rights, 1791. <coughs> but there is no evidence, no reason to think that 18th century people would have thought that burning a flag was a, was a form of free speech. Now we can say it if we think it, um, but it's it's obviously a modern decision. It's not. It owes nothing really to the Constitution. Um, can Citizens United be defended from an originalist perspective? Nothing can be defended. What can be defended from an originalist perspective? I mean, the best a good example of that, what a futile, what absurdity it is, is the Supreme Court keeps saying things like the Fourth Amendment requires that the search or search of a person's house or arrest in his house requires a warrant. 
Well, if you look at the Fourth Amendment, the Fourth Amendment never requires a warrant. The Fourth Amendment forbids general warrants and warrants that lack probable cause <coughs> or don't have oath or affirmation in them. So there's nothing positive about warrants in the Fourth Amendment. The Supreme Court wants to say we like, we love warrants, you know, we can't have a reasonable search without a warrant. Uh, they could say that, wouldn't be very persuasive, but they could say it. But but it can't be attributed to the Fourth. Another Scalia example is the Second Amendment, the Heller case, the gun case. If you read the Second Amendment, you know anything about the 18th century, it's perfectly obvious that what is going on, the states were very concerned that the new federal government was going to take away the state militias and have a big standing army like Britain. That'd be terrible. So the Second Amendment, which starts off with a little introduction about the importance of militias, goes on to and uh, and then goes on to talk about a right to bear arms. In the 18th century, with the militias, they didn't have depots, they didn't have arms depots. So they required not only required that every able-bodied man be a member of the militia. But he had to have a gun in his house. So he, so when you know there was fighting, he grabbed his gun because that's it. Not, they didn't have these muskets and rifles and depots. So the Second Amendment has absolutely nothing to do with personal self-defense. So to defend that on the ground that, and you know, his opinion, full of historical rubbish, you know, 17th century English people running around with swords. And Stevens made a very serious tactical error in his dissent. Because instead of saying, this is all nonsense, just read the Second Amendment, think about the 18th century, nothing to do with personal self-defense. Instead, he, he um, competes with Scalia on Scalia's own turf and looks at all this 18th century, 17th century history of you know England fighting, uh, so then anyone reading the opinions would say, well, you know, they disagreed and, well, Scalia's opinion seems very learned and maybe Stevens is right, but who knows? So, you know, so we'll accept Scalia's. Uh, and on a practical level, what's wrong with Heller is that there's such enormous <coughs> variance in the United States about guns. It's one thing, you know, if you're off in Arizona or some, even in uh, southern Illinois, you know, uh, there aren't many people around, there aren't many police. Uh, you could see how people would want to have a gun for uh, self-defense. But if you go into the cities, into the slums and so on, it's extremely dangerous to allow people to have guns. So until Heller, this, the matter of gun regulation was left to the different states and cities and so on, and worked, seemed to work fine. So I think it was a terrible opinion. You went over to that one. 
All right. Well, thank you. I think we've done the First Amendment, Second Amendment, Fourth Amendment. <laughs> you have any views on the Fifth Amendment? Um, so we're uh, we're in New York. Uh, please, uh, just to make it a little more collegial, when you uh, ask your question or, or comment, um, you might just uh, tell us your name, uh, so uh, Jeff and, and and Dick know. If I can take uh, the prerogative of asking the first question. Um, uh, Justice Holmes, I'm paraphrasing, uh, once said that people want to go to hell in a handbasket, it's my job to help them. <laughs> uh, uh, could that be a Posner maxim? <laughs> uh, no. Holmes made comments like that occasionally. The notion was, so he worried, he worried about the courts being too... Uh, too prone to interfere with, um, uh, you know, democratic process with legis with legislatures. So what he what he was saying in that phrase was the fact <coughs> that I think a law is bad is not an adequate reason to vote to invalidate it. Um, of course, he did vote to invalidate laws, but. <clears throat> So he, he did have that uh, democratic uh, streak uh, in him. On the other hand, there are cases in which very strong personal feelings of his shine through. So, for example, Buck versus Bell about the uh, compulsory sterilization of a woman believed to be um, feeble-minded apparently all erroneous, but he, he didn't know that. But um, he wrote the opinion upholding this uh, state practice with obvious relish. And we know from his correspondence and so on that he was a big enthusiast for the genetic movement. It was very big in the 20s and 30s. Um, big in America because it was felt that the immigrants were um, lowering the IQ of the American people. I mean, the problem was the immigrants came in not, not, not speaking the language, not having good English or no English, and then they're given IQ tests and they do very poorly. So the notion was, you know, the immigrants were dragging down the American IQ. And, you know, Planned Parenthood started, started off in order to try to raise the... Um, intellectual level of population. So Holmes, like a great many Americans, <coughs> bought into that. That overrode his, you know, the kind of phrase that, that Ron quoted. That was Judge Richard Posner and University of Chicago professor Jeffrey Stone speaking in May 2016 at the University of Chicago as part of the First Amendment Salon interview series. To watch a video version of this podcast and to catch the Q&A portion of the interview, visit FIRE's YouTube channel at youtube.com slash thefireorg or click the link in the description. And also, please do not forget to catch our other podcast interview this week with Jeffrey Miller about the neurodiversity case for free speech. This podcast is hosted by me, Nico Perino, edited by Aaron Reese, and recorded and produced by the fine folks who put on the First Amendment Salon, including Ron Collins and Lee Levine. 
To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at speak at thefire.org or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. If you enjoyed this episode, please, please, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Reviews do help us attract new listeners to the show, and they're also just good for my ego. And uh, with that, until next time, I thank you all again for listening.